This is the 2015 Ontario Winter Bible School. Our speaker for this second session is Brother Mark O'Grady from the Tawa New Zealand Ecclesia. His theme this week is One in Christ Jesus, Complementary Roles. Our, his, this is his first class, and the subject for the class is One in Christ Jesus. Our reading was taken from Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 to 31. Brother Mark. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. In Scripture, our community is described as being a woman. Why is that? What's the biblical role of women? At the heart of our Christadelphian community are our families. And at the heart of our families lies the essential role, the vital role, of our sisters as mothers and wives. They also enrich and make possible the functioning of ecclesial life. And the warmth and the richness of their influence is very important to stop ecclesial life and family life from being what would otherwise be a veritable desert. Our objective this week is to try and understand why it is that our community is described in Scripture as being female or a woman. Now, of course, we know that men and women are different. Physically, they're different. Uh, the way their brains work are different. Physiologically, their brains are different, and mentally, they work differently. And we actually find that even in society today, their roles tend to be different. However, of course, as we all know, the role of women in society today has faced enormous challenges, particularly over the last hundred years. And then as society starts to change its view, so the pressure comes on us, to change our views, to conform to what society around us says. And now, a bewildering array of opinions on this topic assails us. And it can leave us wondering, well, what is the role of sisters? Is it satisfying? Is it demeaning? Is it elevating? Is it inappropriate? Some people, even within the Brotherhood, claim that the approach that we take in our community to the subject is just based on the bias of Victorian England, the days when the truth was rediscovered by Brother Thomas and by Brother Roberts. Others claim that Scripture is not to be taken too literally with its forthright comments, that it just reflects the bias of its day and the culture of the day when the various authors wrote, and that we have to reinterpret Scripture for the world in which we all find ourselves living today. So what is Bible teaching? And what are the principles that are involved? And how do our sisters, and for that matter our brothers also, how do we apply those principles living in a modern world? Are we convinced about what the scriptures say? Or are we a touch embarrassed about it? Now we want our sisters to be happy in the roles that they have. To understand them from God's perspective. To see them as being an honour. A role in which they can feel richly satisfied and fulfilled. Actually to be confident, with a godly confidence, to be confident in asserting what they wish to do with their lives. And with a good understanding as to why. And we want our young sisters to be happy and confident to make the right choices in life. 
Now, our objective with these particular studies over the course of this week is to have our opinions, our thoughts, and particularly our behaviour shaped by what scriptural teaching is on this particular topic. Let's have a look at what God's perspective is on this thing, because, of course, that's going to be our touchstone. And by the way, of course, as a male, that's the only way I, or any brother for that matter, can give any advice to our sisters on this particular topic. As a brother, I can and do observe the roles of sisters in ecclesial life, but of course I am never going to be able to personally experience what it's like. Personal opinion, observation, experience can be useful, but they are limited. The only opinion that bears any weight is the opinion of Scripture. So this week, that's going to be the touchstone that unites us as we look at this particular topic. So what we want to do is take, as it were, a toolkit approach and arm ourselves with an understanding of of the biblical principles and the teachings of Scripture and then try and work out how we can apply them ourselves in the world in which we live today. Well, the first place, of course, for us to logically begin is, is way back at the beginning. So let's go back to the reading which was read for us this afternoon from Genesis chapter 1. The principles that are laid down at the beginning at the foundation of the world. Now the creation of both men and women is first described in Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28. Now clearly there's a differentiation between them in that there is a male and a female referred to in those verses. In verse 27, male and female created he them. But it's notable that apart from that, in this first record in Genesis chapter 1, everything else about this first couple is exactly the same. They're both made in the image and the likeness of the Elohim, Adam first and then Eve. They are both told that they're going to have dominion over all the other creatures. They're both blessed. They're both given the same task of being fruitful, replenishing the earth and subduing it. They're both included in the analysis that when God saw everything that he had made, it was very good. So in both their physical shape or their image and in their likeness, their similitude generally to the angels, they were a reflection of the angelic hosts that were used to to complete the creation work. So we start with this very basic foundation from Genesis chapter 1, that in this overall purpose of God, as defined here in Genesis chapter 1, there is no differentiation in the objective that God has for them, or what he wants to achieve with them. So whatever differentiation we're going to find in Scripture as to their respective roles, God's objective with them is exactly the same. They're both made like the angels. They both have a responsibility to work together to fill this earth with God's glory. So not surprisingly, we find that as we then track through Scripture, God's relationship with them and the offer of salvation for them is identical for both male and female. Let's look at these words, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God's a father for both men and women equally. 
They're both invited to join his family on exactly the same basis. Cleanness and separation from the things of the world around us. And then God will receive them. So in this respect, there is no differentiation between them. Now, of course, the obvious consequence of that is that divine principles and all of God's moral requirements apply equally to men and women. So when Christ tells us not to be angry without righteous cause, or that we should take up our cross daily and follow him, or that we should love Yahweh our God with all our heart and soul and mind, we find there's no differentiation in those requirements for either men or women. In other words, the moral compass of the saints is identical for all, both male and female. Therefore, logically, we all share exactly the same hope of eternal life. As Peter puts it, and he's referring particularly, of course, to husbands and wife, but he says in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, they're heirs together of the grace of life. So there is no differentiation in the roles of male and female in the salvation that is offered in Christ. Now I'd like you to come with me to Galatians, a passage we know well, which makes this abundantly clear. Galatians and chapter 3. It's a passage we tend to use often in our our public addresses when we speak of of the hope of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, and commencing at verse 26, where the Apostle says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. So God's love for us, the value that he places upon us as his children, the role that he has for us as part of his purpose, his offer of salvation in Christ, our oneness in Christ, God's relationship with us, it's exactly the same for men and women. That's the foundation point that we see back in Genesis and chapter 1. Now why is that important? Well, it's important for this reason, brothers and sisters, no matter what differentiation God has established in Scripture between our respective roles, it does not relate to God's estimation of us as individuals or to our value in his sight. And these principles are very clear. One in Christ Jesus. Now, there's something which it's quite important for us to note here in this passage in Galatians chapter 3. You note that Paul does not say that we are all equal in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes we come across, and I have come across this passage being misquoted to say, ah, there's Paul saying that we are all equal in Christ Jesus. The concept of equality is a public catch cry today, isn't it? We live in a world of equal rights. And the phrase equal or equality just resonates in a society that's been brought up in a diet of liberty, equality and fraternity. Equality in its human rights sense is not actually a divine goal. We are one with Christ. We are not equal with Christ. 
In the parable, some servants will rule over five cities, some over two cities. That is not equality as far as this world is concerned. So we need to be a little careful with how we define this word equal or equality if we hear it being used. Now why do we need to get that clear? Well, for this reason, that as we go on to examine different roles that God's given us, and particularly in relation to the roles of leadership, we have a particular impediment to try and overcome. The flesh, and this world in particular, places great esteem on being leaders, and it emphasises the concept of status, particularly based on leadership roles. And therefore, the flesh believes that anyone who's not the leader is thereby demeaned. And it's amazing how this this philosophy in the world today can just subtly colour the way in which we think. First of all, there's a risk for anybody in any leadership position in ecclesial life. There's a risk of human pride. Ironically, another manifestation of the same thing is manifested in exactly the reverse. If we don't like or try and pull down or despise leaders, or maybe even rejoice if we see someone fall in a bit of a spirit of mean-mindedness. So the concept of leadership is actually rather challenging for us as human beings. But that's not the divine way. Christ was and is a leader, and yet he washed the disciples' feet. And he teaches us to be servants. So as we head into this, uh, into this particular subject this, uh, this, this week, uh, let's try and remember these two useful keys. First of all, equality of the human rights variety is not actually a divine principle. And secondly, true leadership, as manifested by Christ, involves a service role. And keeping those two principles in the back of our mind will help us as we go through this subject, God willing, this week. All right, well, let's start by looking at at the big picture, as it were. What's the overall impression that we gain from Scripture on this particular topic? Is it possible for us, as it were, to take a little bit of a helicopter overview and try and glean an overall impression of what the teaching of Scripture is on this topic? And the best way to answer that question is to sit down and to physically read through from Genesis through to Revelation and note down and absorb what every page tells us about the role of sisters. And so I actually went through that process. I sat down, read through from Genesis to Revelation, and I wrote down every reference to the role of women as I went through. So I'm going to be making fairly extensive use of that as a resource to draw on as we go through the course of our studies together. Now, as I did that, brothers and sisters, you know what really, really struck me? The record and focus of Scripture and the matters that it describes are overwhelmingly male. Now, whilst you might have guessed that, and I I guess I, I probably assumed that, I was completely overwhelmed by the extent of that as I read through the divine record. So before we look at any explicit particular scriptural passage, just just contemplate the pervasive flavour of scripture as a whole. And what do we find? Not one book of the Bible was written by a female. With the exception of Athaliah, who usurped the throne, every monarch was male. The priesthood was all male. The Levitical workers were male. Every aspect of worship within the tabernacle was male, And with the exception of the female singers, the same applied also for the temples. The twelve disciples were male. The twelve apostles were male. 
ecclesial elders were male. Every named angel is a male. The elders over the twelve tribes were males. As we read through the book of Psalms, which speaks of the relationship between God and man, or man with his God, and the power of God, we find that the flavour of it is overwhelmingly male. The righteous is spoken of predominantly in male terms, likewise the wicked as well. And in fact, when we find that women are referred to in the Psalms, it's so often in a particular narrow range of spheres, as a wife or as a mother in particular, uh, or women praising or singing. When Israel were to be numbered, it was the males who were counted. In fact, that's not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. Think of the miracles when Christ fed the multitude. And what does the record say? There were 5,000 men, besides women and children. When genealogies were taken or families described, it was defined by the male lineage. The covenant of circumcision was applicable only to males. Patriarchs, well, by definition, they're male. The expression for the father's sake is common. We don't read for the mother's sake. Women are described as being given and taken in marriage. Males are not. You know, even that terminology, it seems to imply possession, doesn't it? Something which can be given or taken. And once a woman has been taken in marriage, they become part of the household belonging or occupied, belonging to or occupied by that man. Under the law a man could disannul a vow made by his wife. You know, it's impossible to read through Scripture and come up with any other conclusion. It's just overpowering in the extent of it. And that represents over 4,000 years of recorded history of God's interaction with the human race, and much of it is a reflection of God's explicit commands and instructions as well. You just can't gainsay. Then over the top of that, we start to lay lay some rather explicit statements of Scripture. And you know, this is where it starts to get a bit gritty. Unto the woman he said, Thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Genesis 3.16 Numbers 30 verse 13 Every vow, every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it, or her husband may make it void. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 34, let your women keep silence in the ecclesias, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Or Ephesians 5 verse 24, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 35, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the ecclesia. 1 Timothy 2 verse 11, let the woman learn in, sub- in silence with all subjection. Verse 12, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Isaiah 3 verse 12, as for my people, children are their oppressors, women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy parts. Now the strength of those words causes you to take a bit of a deep breath, doesn't it? Now, of course, I've deliberately taken the most forthright passages to make a point. By themselves, that's not the whole story. But it is a very clear message that comes from Scripture. Remember, every single one of those statements is inspired by God. 
Nowadays, with the influence of the society in which we live very strong upon us, we feel, or we risk feeling, a little uncomfortable with those words. Do we feel a little awkward? Perhaps even a touch embarrassed by the strength of those words? Do we try to water them down a little bit, or maybe try and explain them away? Because that's why you hear people saying, well, the Bible just reflected the culture of its day and, and the bias of the day in which it was written. You know, we, we really have to just sort of reinterpret it for life in the 21st century. But Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Peter says, holy men of old spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, either God is biased and imperfect, or he's done it deliberately. In which case, we have to try and find out what he means and why, because we can't hide from it. That's exactly what the Bible says to us. Men are in a headship role, women are in a submissive role. And we just have to decide whether we want to accept what the Bible says or not. You know, actually what this really does is it cuts right to the core of our attitude towards Scripture. Is it in all aspects the inspired Word of God, or is it just a time-bound good book? And we need to look at what Scripture says this week, and we need to, be, to base our beliefs and our understanding and our lives upon what God's clear and unequivocal teaching is, rather than just trying to change it a little bit to make it match and be a bit more comfortable with the society in which we live today. All right, well, let's go back to the beginning again and see what else we can glean. Let's go back this time to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have a little more detail given on this creation of men and women. Now, we know, of course, that birds and fish were made on day 5. And, interestingly, God made male and female birds and fish. On day 6, God made the animal kingdom. And he made male and female animals. Now, humans are going to be made. But the process of producing male and female of the human species was going to be utterly unique. It was going to be a totally different process from what had been applied to the animal, fish and bird kingdoms. So this is deliberate. And what an unusual process to choose. Think about it. You make a man and then you put him to sleep. And then you open up his side. And you pull a rib out. And you take this quivering rib and you use that to now fashion another human being. Why would you do that? It's so different from the process of creation that was used for the male and female of all the other species. So what do we take from it? You know, one of the great things is we have New Testament commentaries on Old Testament passages and they teach us to take very careful and precise notice of exactly what's recorded in the Old Testament. Every nuance, every little phrase, even the order in which things are recorded is precise and deliberate. So the New Testament writers, when they reach back and use those passages, they show us that a very careful reading of every little aspect of the record can be drawn on to teach us lessons in life. So, for example, we say, well... Adam was made first. So in a sense, perhaps he had preeminence because he was the first one that God started with. God's work with the human race began with Adam. 
So he comes first in the divine order, not in value, but in role. Well, would that be reading too much into the narrative? Well, we're guided, of course, by the Apostle Paul, because he quotes this fact explicitly. He makes that exact point. First of Timothy 2, verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So one of the aspects from Genesis chapter 2 that Paul refers to is the order of creation. And he says the fact that Adam was created first is teaching us a particular lesson. It's one of the reasons why God says that man is in authority. Little details here, even the precise order of the events, are therefore important. Alright, well what do we read in Genesis chapter 2? Genesis chapter 2, and let's pick up in verse 18. Yahweh Elohim said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. The word means a help, suitable for him. So here are two statements made about the objective in creating Eve for Adam, or for creating the female. First of all, he says it's not good for man to be alone. So one of the foundation principles is this idea of companionship. That Eve was created because Adam being alone would not have been a good state. So it's not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to make a wife. And secondly, she's there to be a help meet, to assist him in that work. Now do you notice the really singular way in which the record then stops in verse 19? It diverts off to look at another slightly different topic. Verse 19, out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. So having established the fact that, you know, it's not good for Adam to be lonely and he needs a a wife, the record seems to turn its back on that topic and say, oh, and by the way, the animals were created. And let's bring them to Adam and get Adam to name them. And in our mind, we can see this whole procession of animals paraded in front of Adam as he names them. Wow, that's got a long neck. That's a giraffe. Here's this big ferocious animal. That's going to be called a lion. This one's hopping. It's called a frog. And it goes through this extraordinary process of this procession of animals, which are then all named one by one by one. What's happening here? Well, the concept of Adam being alone has been identified, and the fact that he needs some assistance, and the entire animal kingdom is paraded before him, and then the record says... Verse 20, Adam gave names to all cattle, to all the fowl of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. And the record's making the point to us, brothers and sisters, there was going to be something special and unique about the relationship between male and female of the human species. And there was nothing in the animal kingdom which was going to come close to it. Totally unsuitable. There's going to be something specially designed by God as far as this relationship is concerned. It's interesting to note here that it's not her work which Adam has been created to assist her in doing, but his work that she is created to assist him in doing. That's another little point which is picked up by the Apostle Paul, this time in 1st of Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9. Neither was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. And again, another very clear implication 
of the roles of leadership, which the father has established. All right, well, what about this rather unusual process with the quivering rib? When the process was complete, and these two, Adam and Eve, were brought face to face, and they both understood the unusual and elaborate process which had been used to create Eve, what would be the impact, the behavioural and psychological impact of that experience and that knowledge on the two of them? First of all, on the part of them both, there's a shared experience. There's, there's a connection between them, isn't there? There's a bond. There's a sympathy between them. As Brother Thomas describes it in Elpis Israel, page 48, a sympathy was to be established between them by which they should be attached inseparably. All right, well, what about on the part of the man? He's just learnt the meaning of sacrifice. He's had to give up something for this relationship. Now he learns to care for her as if she is part of him. Paul, of course, directly alludes to that in his section on marriage in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the Ecclesia. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. And you can see what the Apostle's drawing on here from what took place in Genesis chapter 2. So protecting, nourishing, caring for, those were roles for the male right from the outset, according to Paul's comments based in Ephesians. Right, well what about on her part? Do you think that she would feel any responsibility towards him? Do you think that if he needed help, she would feel any inclination to come and give him a hand? Do you think she would feel any gratitude towards him? Do you think she'd feel any sense of dependency upon him? After all, she owed him her very existence itself. She'd come into being based on what he had given up for her. Her life is inextricably bound up with what he has given up for her. In fact, you know, that's another reason that the Apostle Paul picks up as to why man has a headship role. First Corinthians eleven verse eight, for the woman is not sorry, for the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. So here's a person who's been brought into, into existence to be an assistance to him, to provide support, companionship, to assist him in the work that God has given him to do, who has a dependence upon him, who has an empathy with him, and who's created to be led by him, as far as the apostles are able to tell us. So what does that tell us about their respective roles in ecclesial and family life? Alright, we're going to change the topic now a little bit and we're going to go to the world of science, the world of anatomy. And what do we find? We find that men and women think differently. We, uh, in our ecclesia we have a, uh, a brother who was a psychologist. And it was interesting actually talking to him and looking at the research that's been done and information that he could provide about, about what is recognised as the different way in which men and women think. Their brains are physiologically different and they actually think differently. It's fascinating, isn't it, that after decades of the unisex movement, with its ideological insistence that the only difference in roles is because of environment, 
upbringing, gender stereotyping, or any sort of phrase that they like to use, there is nowadays a growing awareness of the difference in the way in which men and women think, and the fact that their brains actually work differently. Now, I'm going to oversimplify things slightly for the sake of making a point, so there's a a warning there that it's a slight generalisation, but this is basically true. First comment they make is that women's brains hold on to emotional memories and engage them more strongly than men. Men tend to compartmentalise more and look more clinically at things. And what that means is, in an emotional situation, men will tend to behave more objectively and more clinically. They're also more competitive, and they will take more risks more decisively. Those are important characteristics in leadership. Conversely, in times of high risk, or where testosterone levels are pumped up a little, men take increasing risks, where women tend to be more concerned about consequences, and in those situations, the ameliorating influence of a woman on the men will lead to much better outcomes jointly. Um, I've been uh, a member of the Institute of Directors and read with some interest some of the material that they've been sending out recently, in recent years, on this particular subject. Back in the, uh, in the financial crisis in New Zealand, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009, the finance sector in New Zealand went through a complete bloodbath. There were billions and billions of dollars of value lost off retirement savings when many, many finance companies went to the wall. And the reflection that, was, that came out very strongly from the Institute of Directors afterwards was that if there had been more women on the boards of those companies, they would actually have made more cautious decisions and they wouldn't have had the same catastrophe through that particular period. And I just think it's interesting that you start to see those types of, of observations in writing today. There's also a fascinating article in the UK, uh, in the the Independent newspaper, back on the 3rd of December 2013. It was a report on a study which was recently concluded by the University of Pennsylvania. In this particular research, they imaged the brain and they literally physically identified the different ways in which men and women think. They they used a, a brain scanning technique called diffusion tensor imaging and it actually measured the flow of water along the neural pathways and therefore electrical impulses. And they they established the level of connectivity between different areas of the brain and they broke the brain down into about a hundred different regions and they looked at the linkages that took place in the thinking processes. And it's just look, and I'll put up some of their observations. Just have a look at these observations in the light of what you know based on Genesis chapters 1 and 2. A pioneering study has shown for the first time, first time, great, for the first time that the brains of men and women are wired up differently, which could explain some of the stereotypically differences, stereotypical, sorry, differences in male and female behaviour, scientists have said. These maps show us a stark difference and complementarity in the architecture of the human brain that helps to provide a potential neural basis as to why men excel at certain tasks and women at others, said Regini Verma, Professor of Radiology at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. What we've identified is, when looked at in groups, there are connections in the brain that are hardwired differently in men and women. In women, most of the connections go between left and right, across the two hemispheres, 
while in men most of the connections go between the front and the back of the brain, she said. Because the female connections link the left hemisphere, which is associated with logical thinking, with the right, which is linked with intuition, this could help to explain why women tend to do better than men at intuitive tasks, she added. Intuition is thinking without thinking. It's what people call gut feelings. Women tend to do better than men at these kinds of skills, which are linked with being good mothers, Professor Verma said. There's a diagram of the two. You can see on the left-hand side there the men's brain, male brain with the, the, the wiring front to back, and the female brain on the right-hand side. Many previous psychological studies have revealed significant differences between the sexes in the ability to perform various cognitive tasks, or sorry, tests. Men tend to outperform women involving spatial tasks and motor skills such as map reading. Don't smile, brethren, as you read that one. While women tend to be, to, to be better in memory tests such as remembering words and faces and social cognition tests which try to measure empathy and emotional intelligence. It's quite striking how complementary the brains of women and men really are, said Ruben Gurr of Pennsylvania University, a co-author of the study. It's quite striking how complementary the brains of women and men really are. Well, really. Welcome to Genesis chapter 2. In the words of Genesis 2 verse 18, a helper as his counterpart. Isn't it so surprising, brothers and sisters, that the characteristics and the thinking processes of the brains of the two different sexes just happens to perfectly match the roles that God has created them to fulfil? God willing, in our next studies, we're going to have a look at how those God-given characteristics are then harnessed in the examples of, of men and women in Scripture. Now, with minds and thinking processes that clearly work differently for men and women, that creates not only possibilities, but also some risks. There are tendencies here which can be used for good or can also be used for evil. So we look at men. Yes, men are more competitive, they're more impulsive, they're more risk-taking, they're more focused. And at many times, this means they possess a decisiveness which is ideal for leadership. At other times, it means that in the heat of the moment, they can make wrong decisions. Now again, Scripture is the best place to see examples of this at work. We won't turn it up, but 1 Samuel 25 is an excellent, well-known example. What happens? Nabal insults David. In the heat of the moment, a surge of anger, gird on your swords, we're off to execute vengeance. And a terrible outcome would have been the result. Thank God for the presence of a wise woman who by her action was able to stop David from executing vengeance in his own self-righteous anger. Husbands, how often have we been in that situation? We've seen something that's happened in the family. Right, I'm off to deal with that. And fortunately, a wise voice has said to us, um, yeah, but before you do, you might just want to be aware of this and this and this as well. A calming influence that tends to encourage us to look at things a little more patiently. All right, conversely, when it comes to women, they have minds which are more in tune with and more captured by emotional concerns 
and therefore more empathetic. That is a wonderful attribute. It means that they have an extraordinarily important role in families and in ecclesial life, in nurturing, in caring for people, in enriching the atmosphere in which all of us function. Where would we be brothers without the loving and nurturing care of sisters in ecclesial and family life? But what might be some of the downsides of those same attributes? Are they more susceptible to being emotionally swayed, influenced, or even on occasions manipulated? Or, to use the word of the scripture, deceived? Think again, go back to the beginning, think again about the example of Eve. In Genesis 3 verse 13, Eve was deceived by the serpent, and that then becomes the benchmark of deception, generally. And so we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, speaking to the whole ecclesia, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. In fact, this is actually picked up by the Apostle Paul as another explicit reason as to why women should not take the lead in ecclesial life. So we have in 1 Timothy 2 verse 13, For I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. And Paul's drawing on that incident as an explicit reason as why sisters should not take the lead in ecclesial life. Is this suggesting a tendency or a susceptibility here. Well, think of some other examples in Scripture. The Jews in, 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 at Antioch, uh, in Acts 13, verse 50, it says, The Jews stirred up the devout and honourable women. Or, there's another very graphic occasion, and I'm just looking at the time, working out whether we have enough time to have a quick look at it. Let's, let's turn up quickly. First of Kings, chapter 2. This is really quite a fascinating story. This is the story of Adonijah and Bathsheba. First of Kings and chapter 2. Now we know the story, how Solomon was, was made king. And Adonijah decided that he loved um, Abishag, who was the young woman that had been taken to keep David warm. And so in First of Kings chapter 2, Adonijah comes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. She's a bit nervous in verse 13. Have you come peaceably? He said, oh, of course, I've come peaceably. He said, moreover, I have somewhat to say unto thee, in verse 14. She says, say on, and just look at what he does. You know that the kingdom was mine, that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. But of course, it didn't work out that way. The kingdom's turned about, it's become my brother's, your boy. Because it was of Yahweh, I've just got one little petition for you. Please don't say no. She says, well, say on. Can you see how he's working on her feelings? He's gone to this woman and he says, Your son's the king. I was going to be king, wasn't I? And she thinks, Yeah. All of Israel were actually supporting me, weren't they? And she thinks, Yes. But I haven't got it. Your boy got it instead. Yes. Aren't I a poor fellow? And you can see how he's working on her emotions. She says, I just, just want one little request. You go and ask Solomon. He won't say no to you. Just ask if I can have Abishag as wife. Now Bathsheba is completely swayed by that logic. 
So she decides she's going to go and see King Solomon. So he says, well, what do you want, Mum? And she said, oh, can you just give uh, Abishag to Adonijah for wife? And he says, what? You might as well give him the entire kingdom. Kill him. That wasn't quite the outcome that she'd been expecting. What he saw was that what we probably had here was actually a, um, a, a rebellion. There was treason at work. He actually used this as the opportunity to, to, to have Joab put to death and to have Abiathar actually exiled because it was a well-established means of establishing one's authority of succession on the throne to take over the concubines or wives of the previous ruler. You saw that with that horrible incident with, Adonai, with um, Absalom when he, when he took over the concubines of David. And actually, you, only have to go, you don't have to go any further than the sordid history of the British monarchy to see that in spades. And he, he, he perceived exactly what was sitting in behind this issue. But, but um, Bathsheba hadn't. She was just completely swayed by the emotional sympathy that Adonijah was able to play on in that particular situation. Because, of course, the danger of empathy and feelings is that you can lose objectivity in the process. When there's an issue which is emotionally intense, it's possible to lose sight or clarity on what all of the issues are that are sitting in behind that particular event. We actually all know that, don't we? In fact, it's actually something we're all susceptible to as human beings. It's why if something ever happens in ecclesial life, that affects our own personal families, we find it very hard, male and female, we find it all very hard to be objective about it because it it touches our heart very closely. But women have been deliberately created with a strongly empathetic character. And they are, therefore, more susceptible to it. There are other scriptural examples that we don't have time to look at. Sarah, who's so distressed by the circumstances she finds herself in, she gives another woman to her husband as wife. Or, what about Rebecca, who's so concerned for the well-being of her son that she deceives her own husband, Isaac, and persuades Jacob to do so as well. What about Lot's daughters when they decided they were the only people left on the face of the earth? What we have in every one of those situations is an intense, a very fraught emotional situation. And we have women who, having been swayed by the situation, have persuaded themselves that the means, sorry, the end justifies the means. And either they themselves or they persuade others to do something which is clearly morally wrong in that circumstance. Now, brothers and sisters, if we just think about the different ways in which men and women work, just think about family life, think about ecclesial life, think about how men and women tick, think about the dilemmas or challenges that we experience together, and we can see the truth that lies behind these simple little principles. And the point is that God has clearly made men and women with different strengths and attributes, and they are perfect for their particular roles. So what's that telling us? It's telling us that in a community or in a relationship or in a family, we're going to get the best results if we work together. So brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, talk things through. Let's appreciate and understand the richness of perspective which each other can bring, the different perspectives which we contribute to our communities and to our homes. 
because it cuts both ways. The example of David and Abigail makes that very clear, as do the words of God to Abraham in Genesis 21 verse 12, when God said to Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman, in all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. All right, well, where we're left this afternoon, then, is with one major question, and that is why. Why did God make things that way? Males, females, different attributes, and different strengths. Bear in mind, as we said last night, God invented the idea of relationships. He created the concept of male and female. He invented the idea of marriage. He devised reproduction as a concept. He allocated the respective roles. And therefore, the very idea of male and female relationships and roles are God-invented and God-implemented. So this, therefore, has nothing to do with culture. It has nothing to do with societal norms. It has nothing to do with gender bias or male domination or whatever drivel that society seems to come up with today. For some reason, it's been done deliberately by God, and we've got to find out why. And here lies the nub of our issue. Because, brothers and sisters, if we manage to answer that particular question, then all questions that arise about these respective roles will be answered. Why did God make the human race with two genders and with two different roles? Now, I want to just note some scriptural phrases, and we're going to come sideways, I guess, and answer this question. But let's note a couple of things. First of all, we've seen from some of those passages that men are to take a role as rulers. Man as a ruler, and woman as a counterpart. Also tuck away in the back of your mind a statement by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, that man is the image and glory of God... But the woman is the glory of the man. So man is a reflection of God's glory, and the woman was to be a reflection of the glory of the man. Now let's just take those concepts. The idea of rulership and one reflecting the glory of the other. Where did those ideas first come up in Scripture? Anybody got any ideas? Where's the very first reference to rulership? Where's the word first used in Scripture? Genesis? Chapter 1? Day 4. Let's go and have a look at day 4 of creation. Genesis chapter 1. On day 4, we have the creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. Now bear in mind that on day one, God creates light, and it says in verse 4 that God divided the light from the darkness. Just tuck those words away. Verse 14, day 4, God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs, for seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day... The lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. 
So what God did on day one was divide light from darkness. Now what he's done is appoint the sun and the moon as his deputies, as his agents, to carry on the work that he established on day one. And he's encapsulated that work in their roles as sun and as moon. But do you know what they're called here? They're not called the sun and the moon in Genesis chapter 1. Those names are not given till later. What does he call them? He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. You see what's being emphasised here? It's their respective roles vis-a-vis each other. One is the greater light, the other is the lesser light. How is that the case? Well, we know that the the sun is a light source in itself, and the moon is a reflection of the glory of the sun. They both have a role of rulership. We're going to look at that in later studies. But one is the greater light, the other is the lesser. Can you see the similarities between the husband and wife relationship? The woman is the glory of the man. So on that basis, it should come as no surprise to us to find that the relationship between sun and moon is used symbolically in Scripture to represent the relationship between husband and wife. Psalm 19, the bridegroom as the sun coming out of his chamber. Or think also of the, of the dream that Joseph had. Remember when he referred to his brothers and to his, to his father, to the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowing down? Jacob understood it. Shall I, the sun, and thy mother, the moon, bow down to you? And so we find in Scripture that the sun and the moon and the relationship between them is used in Scripture of the relationship between male and female. The sun gets used to represent the dominant political power that rules. Often it's a political power that's used in prophecy. The moon often gets used as a representation of the religious system, which is also used in the symbology or has the symbology of a woman applied to it. So what is this juxtaposition of roles between the greater and the lesser? What is that trying to convey to us? Well, is it, is it a cameo of the relationship between, between Christ and the bride? And we say, well, yes, but that itself is only a reflection of a much more important thing. What is the greatest male-female representation in Scripture? It's the relationship between God and his people, and that's our key. That's actually what this entire topic is all about. That's the point behind the respective roles of male and female. They are a relationship, or a representation, should I say, of the relationship between God and between his created people. And it's been embedded in the nature and the course of creation itself, because it depicts the relationship between faithful members of the human race and their creator. We haven't got time to go through all these passages. I'm going to flip through them very quickly. Isaiah 54 verse 5 we looked at last night. Thy maker is thy husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. Isaiah 62 verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Hosea 2 verse 9. I will betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. Ezekiel 16 verse 8. When he was speaking about entering into a covenant of marriage with Israel. Jeremiah 3 verse 4, I'm married unto you. 
Isaiah 87 verse 5, of Zion it shall be said, this man and that was born in her. Again, you notice the, the way the, the symbology of a female is used of Zion and the, and the children of Zion. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, when it then gets extended to the work of Christ, espoused as a chaste virgin to Christ. Or Ephesians 5 that we've already referred to, husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the ecclesia. You see the point now, brothers and sisters? This transcends the world's petty squabbling about respective roles. It elevates this theme completely out of this world. It causes the role of the sisters to soar above all the squalid pettiness of what this world says with its record of equal rights. The role of our sisters is to teach the entire human race about what our relationship with the Almighty should be. That is their transcendent calling. The biblically defined role of women is not some put-down imposed by domineering males. It's the beautiful way that God has embroidered across creation a whole series of lessons that teach us how to respond to him and the relationship that all of us should have with him as our creator. The problem, of course, with the human race is that from the days of Eve, they have aspired to grasp to equality with the angels. And that's why the world just doesn't get what these roles are all about. You see, this understanding, brothers and sisters, it converts what the world sees as being subservience into a divinely ordained privilege of being able to demonstrate in this life, the highlight of what God wants his relationship with the human race to entail. Does that seem unpalatable to this godless world? Well, so does everything that's biblical and reflects the glory of God. So now, God willing, as we go throughout our studies, as we look at the different roles that God has appointed for our sisters, we're going to look at them through a new lens. We're going to see them as God has created them and why. And brothers, in the process, it's going to examine and test how we conduct ourselves in family and ecclesial life. If we approach this topic with that spirit, it will transform our society, both now and in the age to come. So as Yahweh says, truly I live, all of the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh.